Welcome to Journey to Oz, the podcast where we share migration stories from overseas to Australia. We're both registered migration agents, Evan, who specialises in employer-sponsor visas, and myself, Nick, who specialises in family visas. Over the years, we have helped many clients who have very interesting stories to tell. Evan, we have a bit of a different story today with Jarks, who migrated to Australia at the age of four. Can you give us a bit of a background on her story? Yeah, Nick, and not only age four, but also migrated in 1969. Jax provides fascinating insight into the voyage over from France and the visa process at the time. We discuss growing up in a foreign country and her later love for storytelling. Today, Jax is a published playwright and author. I started by asking her how old she was when she migrated from France to Australia with her family. I was four and a half when I migrated, so quite young. Very young. And what do you remember at four and a half? What do you remember much about that journey? And how did you come over to Australia? So we, I I was in Toulouse. We were from Toulouse at the time. We were living in Toulouse. And we needed to catch a train to um, Italy to catch ship Galileo. Galileo Galilei was the uh, ship. And that was actually built specifically to... Uh, for migration for people from Italy wow. to Australia. So that was 1961. It was built for that reason. And uh, so we caught the ship uh, and it was like a huge cruise ship. It was awesome. It had swimming pools and they had heaps of activities for children and adults and it was really like a big fun, you know, fun cruise. It was really a cruise. It was wonderful. And especially being four and a half, it was it was a fun holiday, you know, that, that trip it over. It was, it was. I, I was actually looking at pictures because uh, I still have the newsletter that they, they brought out with all these photos and we can see a couple of them. There's so many people, obviously, of all different nationalities, um, but I saw photos of all the different activities that they did and that was fun. I just thought I'd do a bit of research before I came on and spoke to you. And uh, I do remember remember some events of that. Of course, it was a, mo- a month long voyage. Yeah, so goodness. It was, um, yeah, it was it was good fun. Yeah, quite an impressionable age as well to to come over. So w- at the time, it was yourself and your parents. Do you have any siblings as well? Yes, I had an older brother. He was two and a half years older than me. Okay. And then what we did, we had my father actually and his best friend um, and their family. So there was four children in their family. We came out together, so we weren't completely alone, but on the actual ship is where we met a lot of uh, other French and Spanish people and uh, we became friends friends with them. Yeah, absolutely. And that prospect, I mean, the month-long voyage to come over to Australia is fascinating in itself, but for me the procedural aspect of obtaining the visa 50 years ago is the one I'm super keen to dive headfirst into, what was the process that your parents need to go through back in 1969 to migrate from France to Australia? Well, back then there was a skill shortage in Australia, so the Australian government were actually um, sponsoring us to come out. So, so look, I don't remember the exact details oh, of, of it, course, but we yeah. had three years uh, we, um, three years living here. If we were not happy in those three years, they would um, pay our expenses to return back to France. Uh, so that's roughly what I remember. But, yes, yeah, school shortages and my father obviously saw an advertisement for that and being the adventurous person that he was decided to yank his family out of, <laughs> out of our comfort zone and come out to Australia and take advantage of that opportunity. 
And what do you remember any difficulties about being a four and a half year old coming to Australia, sort of undergoing any cultural simulation at all? Uh, if you can imagine, you sort of don't really know what happened as a, a very young child. You just oh, we had quite a large family in in France. Well, they were scattered. So my father was uh, relatives are in France. My mother's were in Spain. She had a, a only a, a two sisters. So I suppose it's going from having all those relatives to having no support or no no, you know, no relatives and not knowing the language, I think, was probably the most difficult thing, uh, especially when when we first came out. My brother was a bit older, so it was probably harder for him. I was not, for me, it was hard, but because I started in kindergarten, that's when everybody learns to read and write. So I got the better end of the, you know, the... Um, Picking up the, the language, yes. Yeah, I got the better end because, you know, all the kids were learning, reading and writing at the time. But, I, you know, it was still traumatic because I remember going to school and uh, I remember this girl, I'd be by myself in the playground and this girl came up to me and started talking and obviously I was looking at her with a complete blank expression on my face and she thought, geez, what a weirdo, and walked away. <laughs> And then I remember sitting in the classroom and thinking, I remember sort of being at the back of the classroom and I could see all these heads in front of me and the teacher speaking and I could not understand a word. So it's just all these uh, alienation, really. You felt, you felt yes. isolated. And had there been other children, uh, see, the family that we came with, their um, youngest son was a year younger than me. So he wasn't at school at the time and their older siblings were much older and my brother was older. So it's not like I could sit in the classroom with one of people that we knew, like one of exactly the Exactly, that, that, that isolation. Yeah, and yes. almost like a loss of leaving behind all those relatives and friends as well to completely start afresh, not having anyone in the classroom. Yeah, it was, re it was really tough. I can imagine how tough it was for my parents, though, who had to go out and earn a living and, and you know, manage all the things like renting yes. a house and, and getting all that sorted. Uh, at the time, there was a little bit of help. I think we, we first arrived in Fremantle and then, then um, we went on to Melbourne and we, we actually lived in Melbourne for about 11 months in a like a, I'm not sure if it's called a refuge, I'm not really sure, but it was specifically designed just to help us get on our feet a little bit. Yes. And, uh, yeah, I'm not quite sure. I'm sure they, they had... Um, some sort of, assist, you know, translators that could assist assist us into getting our own place and all the rest of it. And then we didn't really like the weather. My parents didn't like the weather in, in Melbourne, three seasons <laughs> in the one day, so they decided to move to Sydney. And yes. I think one of my father's, that, that best friend, we went together. So then it was um, the family of four kids and then my parents we settled in Sydney in Warrawee, I think it was, and I remember it was really quite funny because I remember my brother and I going to school. Uh, my parents both at that time were working. They wanted to get on their feet. My father didn't really want my mother to, to go to work. Uh, he wanted to stay home with us. But yeah. back in those days there was no daycare or um, after-school care or anything, so 
we went to school and because we couldn't understand the language and it was just not a good experience, we decided we weren't going to school anymore. We just decided to stay home and run a muck in the house. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think the principal finally found a way to, to communicate to my parents what was going on. Yeah. But it was all sorts of cultural things. Like in France, you have a dining hall and you all sit down, you know, for a meal. And we had no idea how to make sandwiches or anything. So we'd go to school not being fed. <laughs> and um, then I think some of my mum finally cottoned on to you're supposed to bring a lunch to school. So she would make, you know, the hamon seran or the cured ham with the bit of baguette and things like that and olives. And I remember in schoolyard, kids look at my lunch and go, Ugh, what are you eating? <laughs> <laughs> and I'd be so embarrassed, I'd just throw it in the bush and I thought, right, that's it, I'm not not bringing that to school anymore. Yeah, but you don't know and it's an experience for your parents as well because, yeah, they, they don't get to see what school is like for you day in, day out. I didn't know anything. It's really hard. Could you imagine them? I mean, we're kids, so we, we have a limited responsibility, but they, they had no clue. Uh, my mum didn't even know what sliced bread was. And then I think someone, I think we, they made an Australian... Uh, Australian family made friends with Australian family and I think they must have told my mum, you know, about Vegemite sandwiches yes. <laughs> and sliced bread and it was disgusting. My mum, like, would just, you know, the, bread, the butter was really hard so she'd put these slabs of butter and, oh, it was just disgusting. I couldn't eat it so I used to throw it throw it out and uh, oh, I remember my mum, we, she hated wasting food, you know. They came from, uh, you know. Upbringing, the, yeah. The upbringing, the Second World War, all the rest of it, all the tail end of the Second World War, we were wasting food, you just didn't do that. And I remember if she'd say, oh, okay, well, making your lunch, bring your lunchbox, and I hadn't eaten my disgusting Vegemite sandwiches, so I'd toss them. If I didn't get a chance to toss them in the bush, I'd toss them under my bed because she was going to get upset <laughs> I had eaten. And one time I remember she calls me into my room and she's got this uh, feather duster, this end of it, and she flicks these mouldy sandwiches oh, out no. under my bed. <laughs> but, you know, I couldn't explain to her then. You don't, you don't explain to her that, you know, mum, you know, this is what happens at school and people make fun of my food or, you know, you can't really explain it. So, you know, you just did what you had to do to <laughs> Yeah, to, to get by. And in terms child. of, yeah, of course. <laughs> and in terms of being at school, is it probably a fair statement to say, and you'd, I want to touch on what you do for work in a moment, but is it probably fair to say that it doesn't matter what your skin color is or, or what you look like, your accent, that if you're different, you know, at, as being a child, that you will be targeted by bullies? Yes, yes, that's exactly right. Because as soon as I opened my mouth and I couldn't speak the language or I tried to say something, uh, that's it, you're, you're different and you're, you know, you're not part of the group. They can't communicate. I mean, young kids as well, it's not what, what can they do? They don't understand why this weirdo isn't speaking properly or they just think something wrong with you. Uh, as um, you know, I'm talking about kindergarten, but my brother was very bullied as well. He was terribly bullied. He'd have yeah. fist fights and everything. They'd get into his bag and throw his, you know, lunch and things all over the place. And he was a lot more bullied than I was um, because being being a bit older. 
But yes, it doesn't matter what you are. The fact is that you're different. And what happens is that when you find someone who's the same as you, one of my best friends ended up being half Italian, half Greek. That was related to year five. But you, you kind of join up with them. You find your tribe or you find people that understand where you're coming from and you stick together. And, and that's probably what you would see in communities um, even in now anywhere in the world, uh, people stick together. So Spanish, French, they um, they stick together. You'll find some suburbs are all sort of very much, um, you know, these suburbs of a lot of, you know, Spanish people or Lebanese people, Italians, and they sort of, you know, stick together. And that's, that's the way to survive, really. It's a little bit sad, but cha- things have changed an awful lot now because back then people would n- not eat prawns or anything. They'd look at prawns. I remember my parents' Australian friends, they were disgusted at prawns. They thought, oh, <laughs> what is that? And all Because we used to eat mumbi in Spanish, you know, a lot of seafood, mussels yes. and prawns and crabs and lobsters and lots of weird food that they would just find utterly repulsive. But now it's like it, they eat everything. <laughs> it's just uh, completely different. And talking about how times have changed as well, you mentioned before about, you know, there was no childcare and after school care back then. I still find today it's, it's quite difficult for, well, yeah, basically migrants who come to Australia as, as children to be able to assimilate i've my wife is a kinder teacher and i reckon once every maybe not every year but once every two years she has a pupil a four-year-old who does not speak any english at all and Mm. they just gravitate towards her being the teacher and by the end of the year they can't stop talking english (laughs) they're the they're the chattiest most playful in the group but a lot has developed over just teaching support and teaching methods i imagine you probably come across a lot of stories in what you do now for work which is a perfect segue to be able to bring up that you're a published author and you like to help other people write their life stories so can you please share with the listeners a little bit about what you do and how you do it yes i love listening to people's stories um the thing is once i learned english i really love to write stories that's how i could communicate uh so i loved when i when I'm talking to people, it my kids sometimes say, "Oh, mommy, so annoying! You ask so many questions." And because I have, I'm so interested in people's stories. I'm so interested in all the details of their stories, and I just find that completely, like, really, really fascinating. And even at school, I used to always make friends with the underdog, with the new person. And so, I think your experiences tend to uh, make you the person you are today. So that's probably why I prefer like life stories and true stories because it's just so amazing the stories that people have, you know, coming from war-torn countries. Oh, resilience, having, bravery, yes. Yeah, it's unbelievable, fantastic stories that really need to be preserved, especially uh, people really understand different cultures now because they're more educated, more opening to learning you know, learning about people. And I think that's so important. That's why I just love helping people to express express themselves and their stories. And is it people that are writing their life stories to pass down to their families? What sort of situation would someone come to and say, hey, I've got an interesting story that I think I want to share? 
Uh, some people, yes, to pass down to stories, but to or to make you know to publish them. Uh, some people have had very you know hurts in their life. They've been have you know some traumatic event, and for them to tell their story, they feel they can help others. A little bit like me, you know, I mean, what I went through. Now you yes. want to help others. You want to understand others and and help others. So I think um, people that want to tell their stories because it's turning inside them and they think this is a story that needs to be told. Some people have incredible stories, but it's still too painful, especially if it's very traumatic and they're not ready, but they want to start documenting. So it's, it's quite, uh, you know, it can be quite difficult, especially when you're talking about certain traumas. Um, and it's a little bit like therapy. They, you know, it's part of the healing write. process, yes. It is. And funnily enough, I, I started to write in a diary from the time I was 11 and then it gravitated to A4 books and I, I didn't understand sometimes what was bothering me and so when I'd start to write, it would all start to come out and I'd feel so much better. I might write five pages, A4 pages of just letting things out off my chest and uh, it's it's. It's not only therapeutic and amazing, but it's also very valuable as part of history. Could you imagine all these uh, stories of wars and experiences that people have? Had nobody ever spoken up or written them down, we would never ever know what they went through. We, we wouldn't know much about what happened in these wars or, or certain experiences. So incredibly valuable for history. I've actually just finished writing a novel and it was it's based on a lady I did theatre with and her parents are vaudeville performers during the Depression. And it's just, it was an amazing story. I turned it into a fictional story because um, it, it became, I didn't know the parents and we're talking almost 100 years now. And yes, yeah. Going back there. But it was so hard to research because not a lot of people wrote these things down. And it, that's the value of um you know, for Australian history, for example, Australian entertainment history, we don't preserve these things. We're lost forever. So I think it's incredibly valuable. And to learn where we're going, we need to learn where we've come from. And it's people like yourself who can um, document those in such a measured way and cooperative way as well um, yes. to be able to to be able to document them into into stories, which, as you said, yeah, people can use them for um, for publishing but can also use them for private use as well and could be quite a healing process for people that have been through quite some traumatic times. Exactly. And even like it's funny because we, we talk about the Great Depression, what we're going through in these days, the last few years uh, that we've had, you know, these tough tough last few years we've had, it's almost um, you can look back on history and see a repetition in a way of of what happens as far as the economy, how people survive, what they do to survive. Like back in the book that I wrote, the great, um, during the Great Depression, people had to barter instead of, yes. you know, they barter tickets for food, you know, here's some tickets and you, in exchange for food or petrol. Uh, things are starting to get a bit like that these days where it's quite tough and we have to learn how, how to survive the tough times. And I'm sure... In your line of work now, you have a lot of people wanting to migrate to Australia. 
and yeah. and their their reasons for doing so as well. It could be leaving their home country for political reasons or exactly. just greater opportunity in Australia. But it's been really eye opening for myself. As much as I'm not the storyteller like you are, I am the recipient of people's life journeys because I need to understand where they've come from to be able to um, process where they're going, which is their Australian visas. So it's yes. been a huge eye opener for me, and it makes me feel very well travelled at times, despite not getting on a plane to a lot of these countries, having to understand a lot of the cultural backgrounds and, oh, goodness, we've got some countries where um, passports don't match up with birth certificates and birth certificates yes. are issued on dates which aren't the actual date of birth for the person. Um, yes. If some countries have different calendar years, it's just been a huge yes. eye-opener for myself and then you learn clients' journeys along the way as well. Yes, exactly, exactly. Different cultures and, and I think that's what people find hard to understand they think that everyone thinks the same way they do or they think that life uh, and that goes both ways like they think life is the same here as it is overseas and there's just such a huge cultural difference I think it's a funny story I was going to tell you was when, when we came to Australia um, we bought our first house you know years down the track and my mother was horrified because she didn't really she was looking for the toilet and there was no toilet in the house and then we okay. found this outhouse yes. you know <laughs> where where all the spiders like to hang out and uh, the more you more you read about the creepy crawlies <laughs> of australia you realize everything is designed evolutionary to kill us in australia yes i <laughs> know <laughs> and she was horrified so my dad had number one priorities as soon as possible put a toilet in the house with some plumbing yes it. And um, and then people, you know, our culture too. We we had chickens and we grew vegetables and things. And Italians are the same, very much. They would, um, you know, make all their home homemade foods and things like that. So the culture is completely different. And I remember at school the baked bean sandwiches and spaghetti sandwiches out of a tin. I yes. was like horrified. <laughs> And Devon and tomato sauce sandwiches. Oh, it's such a you know such a big difference. Um, just even in in food and everything. There's just so so much. It's, you know, everyone's so different. And then I, some, I, sorry. I yeah, sorry, you keep going, Rob. No, no, you go. Uh, I was just saying different cultures as far as not having the food that they're used to, like yes. uh, African families we were, I was friends with and just their flour and their things that they were used to cooking and they didn't understand how, they, you know, simple things work like the toilet, the stove, all that sort of thing. It's, it's so different for everyone. And it, um, it makes for fantastic reading really when you listen to their stories because it really opens your eyes. And, and like you were saying, it's like you've travelled everywhere because you've heard all these different stories. of You learn people. from other experiences, yeah. yes. Exactly. exactly. And something like baked beans in a can, which is a, a staple breakfast camping food for myself, is something <laughs> which like children, when you're going through that, you have to be resilient to these cultural shocks. Would it be fair to say that children need to be resilient and therefore they're coping with sort of internalising their fears when they're going through migrating to another country, especially one yes. in which they don't speak English as the first language? Exactly. Well, that was um, the case with me. You just you don't really know how to cope. It's not like you 
can't go to your parents and say, oh, this and this happened at school and they're going to go in and see the principal because it's all too overwhelming for them. They're trying to survive. Uh, so, yes, we did. We kept a lot of things to ourselves and, yeah, we just didn't talk. I'll, I'll be quite honest. Yes. I didn't talk. That's maybe why I used to start writing because it was like you had to keep these secrets and you had to just not talk about things. It might sound very strange, but I remember certain things that happened and I, I blocked them out of my mind for years. You know, it was like this something would then trigger years later and and you delve into certain things that happened that might have been a bit traumatic. But, yes, you definitely do, do block it away because if you think you're already isolated, and I remember at school I was very much a loner. I, I made a friend uh, in kindergarten, I remember her name was Sharon. It's my first friend. She was Australian, but we she we communicated through sign language. <laughs> yeah, and, and just expression, was, probably. Yes. Yeah, it was good. And she, you know, I was, well, I'm still friends with her to this day. It's oh, that's so amazing. I know. <laughs> thanks to Facebook, they can. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's um, it's good. But I do remember being very isolated. So I was alone. I spent a lot of time in the library. In, at lunch times, just to avoid being bullied, or just to because I knew I was different and didn't really fit fit in. Uh, so, to be honest, to this day, I'm pretty much alone. I'm not a social butterfly as such. Um, maybe that's why I love writing because it's solitary. <laughs> and it sounds almost cathartic for you as well because you're able to express yourself on paper where you have been internalizing that for so long. And that, that came with in hand with mastering the English language for yourself as well. Yes, yeah, that's right. And I think I could see I could see things through different people's perspectives with, you know, making up characters and things like that. That's probably why when I talk to people, I, I'm so intrigued with how they think and what life was like for them that I do ask a million questions. <laughs> but nicely. Yeah, of course. Well, what I'm really picking up from yourself, Jax, is that you love listening to others and their stories, um, but you've also got a fascinating story yourself, to be honest. So uh, what I'm really picking up is that you um, love to understand others and in turn you're able to help others when you do so. Is there a key message from your journey that you would like to share, whether it be through your own experience or the experience of one of your clients that you've had to offer a book for? message if it's coming from migration side of it is embrace new people embrace them and be friends to them because they can enrich your life in more ways than you'll ever imagine just by listening to their stories I think that's what I love to do anyone who was new who came to school you know later on in later primary and high school anyone who was new from any other country I just zoomed in and straight away became friends with them and made them feel welcome. So key message is embrace differences rather than be fearful of them and shun them or stick to your clique and not, you know, not let these new people in because they're different to you. So that would have to be my number one key message. If we did that more often, there would probably be more tolerance um, throughout the world. I mean, you know, there's all sorts of things going on now that are not not good, wars and all the rest of it. People could just understand where the other person was coming from and not be fearful but embrace it 
We're always going to be different in our own way, but that's not a bad thing. We're all deep down. We're all the same. We all love um, our families. We all want to be loved. We want to be heard. We want to be appreciated, and and that's so important. So the key message is just embrace people, embrace new experiences and and people's life stories. Again, going back to life stories, I think you'd be richly blessed. And I think a lot of people do that now, definitely do that. Big change nowadays. We're such a multicultural country and there's so much um, people do really embrace people of all nationalities here now. So I think that's great. I'm not sure what it's like new new families migrating now, even I'm not sure what they do nowadays, but I think if people are thinking of migrating from your side of things, I definitely recommend that they, before they come out here, that they learn the language. But that, you know, I'm sure it takes a while to get your papers ready and get everything sorted. And in that time, it's so important to learn the language, especially for children. Children learn very, very quickly. As you can see, I don't have an accent now uh, because I was so young when I came. The older you are, the more, the more difficult it is to get rid of your accent and then you yes. feel a little bit more isolated because you're very aware of your accent and your difficulty in, in speaking language. Like my parents always, you know, had that bit of a struggle throughout. But if, if there's preparation coming to a new country, I don't, I'm not sure if there's courses in that that they do these days to help families who are coming to these new countries to understand what it's like here. Lots of online resources, yeah. Oh, that's good. So they're not in utter shock when they come over and, and it's just so so different. But even listening to the Australian accent, like for a long time I it took me a while to understand meanings like people would say to me, put a smile on your dial. Yeah, all and those I'm Australianisms, saying, yes. Yes, I'm like, what? <laughs> where's, where's, where's my dial? Yes. <laughs> yeah, all these strange little things that I, I didn't understand. And I went back quite a few times back to Europe and didn't realise I came back with a French accent and people would tease me and go, oh, you're French wrong, you're French. <laughs> and so I'd speak Australian again, make sure I get my Australian accent back again. <laughs> Because you, you can't really hear your own voice. You can't hear what you sound like to other people. So it's, um, you know, quite quite important to hard to understand Australian and and vice versa. Like if someone comes out, even though they speak English like from Ireland or, or England, they have very heavy or Scottish, very heavy accents, sometimes really hard to understand them as well. So there's all these little things that you have to be you know, aware that to speak a bit slower so it's easy to understand and try not to have too much slang lingo when you speak so they can understand what you're saying. My favourite Australianism or yes, Aussie slang is I'll see you later at, at winding up at the end of a uh, chat with someone, but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to wind up on their doorstep later that night or anything. So that's always a, <laughs> uh, always a very common one as well. And, um, yeah, definitely a lot of online resources that people can go to these days, I mean, the Australian Department of Home Affairs have a lot of resources in different languages as well, but just communities in general. You mentioned before, and I think it's lovely that you reconnected with your first kindergarten friend and found through Facebook. Facebook is an absolute goldmine of different Facebook groups and pages of people that um, they've got something mutual of interest, which is, say, migrating to Australia or maybe a particular area of Australia. So there's 
oh goodness, you know, just examples like, you know, Indians in Melbourne or South Africans in Sydney, just all these different groups and people that have gone through that journey themselves, they stay in these groups and they're happy to answer questions for people that go through and post as well. Times have changed a lot over 50 years, but I think the resilience that you had when you first came to Australia, yourself and your older brother, and also your parents, it doesn't just come down to age. Your brother was a couple of years older, but he also went through his own difficulties and as did your parents and, you know, them having to go through preparing you for school, putting you in school, both of them working, as you said, moved from Metro Melbourne to Metro Sydney, all of those different aspects really speaks resilience to yourself and the fact that you like to understand others as a means to be able to help people, I think speaks a lot of credit and volume to the type of person you are as well. Oh, thank you. That's lovely. So if someone wants to reach out, Jackson, maybe today our discussion has triggered that they want to be able to share their story and just find out a little bit more about how you can help them in that storytelling. What's the best way that people can get in contact with you? Um, I have a website. It's just uh, jacks.com, J-A-C-Q-X.com. And that sort of gives you all information about me and or they can email me. But probably if they look at the website, then they can see, oh, yes, they can see what I, I do. But my email is also info at jacks.com. So that would be lovely. So many beautiful stories, really. And some people who have been through very traumatic, they come from countries where extreme trauma, wars and things, and they come here and they're still traumatised and they might have problems like alcoholism or something to cope. Just because they've left the trauma in the country doesn't necessarily mean that they've left that trauma behind and they get these flashbacks and it becomes almost post What's it, post-traumatic syndrome? Yes, uh, yeah, like stress disorder, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so trying to understand people and, and if they can, if anyone can help them, you know, write that out, even if it's not for publication or for family, but just to write it and then get, like, That cathartic healing exactly. process, yes. Exactly, exactly. It helps a lot, it helps a lot. So, yeah, I, I'd say... Love to hear from anyone. I love listening to people's stories. Just love it. As I'm sure people have loved listening to your story today. So thank you for taking the time to come on the Journey to Us podcast, Jax, and we really appreciate your story and also what you do to help others with their storytelling as well. I found Jax's story so relatable compared to my own family uh, who migrated to Australia from Europe shortly after World War II. Like Jax's father, my grandfather decided one day to leave Germany with his wife, who wasn't actually very happy about that at the time, and and their four children, including my father. They didn't speak a word of English and faced similar struggles, making friends and adjusting to Australian culture and the food. And even even as a second-generation child, I was still fed liverwurst sandwiches as a, by, by my family. So... Uh, you know, I, I find it quite fascinating how one person's decision can change the course of the lives of several generations to come. Well, that's fantastic insight into yourself, Nick, as well. Thank you. And a bit of your background. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah. And, and I always find it's the first wave of migrants from a particular region who face the difficulties adjusting to Australian culture. So if you think about it, initially it was the Europeans and then Vietnamese, Chinese, Indians, and more recently, Africans, Afghans, uh, other Middle Eastern uh, nationalities. But 
Then they settle, have children, and those children grow up and contribute to this wonderful multicultural society that we have today. I love how Jux has taken a somewhat traumatic experience and turned it into a positive, where she's able to help others share their stories. I also love her attitude towards embracing the differences rather than being fearful, and what a difference it would make in the world if everyone did that. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. Thank you for listening to the Journey Towards podcast. If you have liked what you've heard, please subscribe or leave us a review. The Journey to Oz podcast is produced by Nick Hansen from Hansen Migration, Migration Agent Registration Number 1679147, and Evan Bishop from Worldly Migration, Migration Agent Registration Number 1679414. Any information discussed in this podcast is made available for entertainment purposes only and is not intended as a substitute for professional advice. We do not make any guarantee or accept any responsibility for the accuracy and completeness of any of the information discussed. You should obtain advice from a registered migration agent or an immigration lawyer before acting on any of the content discussed in this podcast. You can find a list of registered migration agents by visiting mara.gov.au. The information contained within this podcast may not be reproduced without our prior written consent. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of land throughout Australia and pay respects to their elders. We extend that respect to all Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islanders today. Thank you for listening.